0: Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks, alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines. My left eye sees pollution, those dirty fuels are burning, the earth's whole climate's churning, clean energy solution. My right eye scans the bill, fossil achieve cheap wind and solar to steep
1: drill baby drill predefined misaligned polarized division shuttered mind worse than blind 2020 vision welcome back dave got a good break three weeks off that's great Another wave of COVID. Uh, this is now Omicron, yeah, making its way through. But uh, yeah, it's nice. I mean, there's actually we had quite a few days over the break that were really warm and and nice. And uh, you know, we we've had a couple mornings that are about 20 degrees. But but overall, uh, nice uh, January weather. Uh, NFL playoff season uh, that much closer uh, to the end of the school year. So all, all good. So how about yourself?
0: Yeah, we had a good break. We were able to visit my parents for Christmas, which was nice, and get some time away. And we're, we're back at it in terms of working, but uh, classes haven't begun at King's yet. So we've got another week until that starts, a week from today. And trying to do things uh, remotely until classes begin, just to try to dodge as much of the Omicron wave as we can. Of course, it's been really bad in New York City, but looks like the last three or four days, the wave may have crested. So that's encouraging. It would be nice if we could have a real quick <laughs> return to something like normal uh, rates of infection. We, you know, we've we've done very well at the college over the last year and a half, and uh, you know, if we could time this one right, it, things were just getting bad during the end of finals week, and if we it starts to improve just in time for classes to begin, we will
1: be very grateful uh, for that for that timeline. Well, we did great last week. Week one back was was perfect. And then uh, we got hit yesterday. So uh, we we won't have classes on Friday. We're taping on Wednesday. So we'll, we'll make it through this week when you needed substitutes for the substitutes and then it became a little, it's a, it's a staffing issue. You're not, you're not going to beat this thing, but you just have to keep, um, keep your school going just by having it staffed. But um, yeah, last week was kind of interesting though. We, uh, one of the traditions here at Geneva is they have the head of school, give a, a state of the school address at the beginning of the, uh, the new year. And I was a little bit uh, like, oh, my goodness, what am I going to do? I th- thought a state of unions that go on and on were fall <laughs> asleep. So when you're giving one of these to you know, K through fifth grade and, and their parents. So we, we kind of opened it up for more of like a press conference type uh, scheme where we nice. got to ask questions. So I got a variety that went from, you know, do I love purple popsicles? <laughs> Almost like some of our, you know, kind of end of the show, you know, uh, sections, right? Right. Like, what right. would you like? Uh, and kind of grade book ideas there. Maybe we can work on grade book yeah. ideas. You yeah, know, all the way to you know what? What would the world be like without God in it? So that's kind of wow. like The things that come out of their mouths that are they're yeah interesting. But uh, my my most popular response, well, I had two, two responses it was my call that I mean dogs were better than cats, and then secondly naturally. That, you know, no, of course. Yeah. That's a no brainer, but that, uh, you know, I played the demagogue where I offered, uh, I offered that to every class can have a, a pet uh, for a day at, at some point uh, in the, in the future here, that, that brought in cheers. You know, I think, I think I won the election just, just in the pet for the day. So good, good stuff. Good to have um, everyone back. And, and, uh, and it's been good that, you know, for the most part here, I think everyone, the, the symptoms have been mild. I thought I, I think I probably did have COVID over the, the break. Um, Katie and, and Jack and, and Catherine tested positive. Uh, I didn't test and, and neither did uh, Eliza. So, but my guess is we probably all had it. So
0: Well, we've got our faculty conference tomorrow remotely, and I'm not sure what, what my equivalent would be to get the cheers of the pet day. Um, maybe well, I have to cancel have, the conference. <laughs> that might be my best chance. No.
1: <laughs> yeah. uh, just like, if we just yeah start off the meeting and say, this is going to last uh, an hour, not right. eight hours. Right. Uh,
0: yeah, well, we're not doing eight hours. To be fair, we're, we've done a good job of compressing it as much as possible, but, but there's just always stuff uh, that has to be discussed, and then there's the questions about the stuff and all that. So I think you know we're gonna do our best to make it as as lively as can be, given the context, and as informative and necessary as as possible. But I'm not expecting any big rounds of applause. All right. Well, we've reached the end of book four of the politics last three chapters as Aristotle's kind of winding down this consideration of some of the key differences and criteria that separate a democracy and oligarchy in particular.
1: So Dave, you want to lead us through this? Yeah. So in chapter 14 and really chapter 14 through chapter 16, he is going to talk about office holding and how you go about uh, considering what offices there should be where you draw uh, from those offices, how you even pick who's going to serve in offices. So he, he gives us a good outline at the beginning of chapter 14. He says there are three parts in all regimes with respect to which the excellent lawgiver must attempt to discern what is advantageous for each. So the lawgiver must be thinking about three things with regard to office holding. Uh, of these three things one is the part that is to deliberate about common matters what we would call i think the legislative branch in 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 common um, vernacular today the second the part connected with offices that is which offices there should be uh, over what matters they should have authority and then thirdly the adjudicative part so uh, you really have the, the the representation of the big picture of government and the offices that that fit with a government well-run. Now, I think that what he's going to do here in these next couple chapters is he's going to talk primarily, as has been his way through book four, of how democracies handle offices and how oligarchies handle offices. He's going to tell us that in some democracies, uh, it is the uh, method to just choose by lot um, who, who decides and to have all uh, choose in common um, through deliberation what, what will happen. Uh, but then there are kind of uh, uh, more refined democracies uh, in which the assessment that is made of any given situation is assessment uh, by some who are chosen uh, by, the mem- by the many. Uh, the, the assessment is made by, by some who are thought to have a certain expertise uh, over a matter. So uh, there can be, I think, uh, to use Aristotle's language, there can be more of an aristocratic element in the democratic decision-making process. And and of course, his argument is going to be, right, the more aristocratic uh, that democratic process is, probably the greater likelihood that that regime will flourish. So democracy, which is the regime of the many, Uh, is in need uh, of of wisdom. So when you you think through this and you think through its application to uh, a modern American political sense, there are some great parallels uh, here uh, in terms of how we've established ourselves uh, as a country. Um, Can you take us through some of those parallels, Matt?
0: Yeah, sure. I think so there's really three questions that we're dealing with that Aristotle uses as kind of schematically to, to work through these topics. Uh, the first question is, who gets to participate in the selection process for office holders? So in our language, who is eligible to vote? Um, second question, uh, who can hold office? So who's eligible to run for office? Uh, who's eligible to be elected or appointed? And then thirdly, is that process by which somebody takes office, is it based upon lot? In other words, is it random? So we kind of pull names out of the hat. Um, or is it based on election? And you know, we don't think about this in this way, probably, but, but election is an aristocratic kind of element, right? Because it allows for the voters to choose those that are excellent uh, rather than just those that are average, which is what you would expect in the long run if you chose, chose by lot. Of course, you would get some above average, some below average, some average, right? But you would get a kind of a random assortment that would be representative in a certain sense, of the people, but maybe not in the way we'd want it to be, right? We all imagine that we want our leaders to be better than average uh, in intelligence and wisdom and character. And so election is the method that we use in order to achieve that. And we've talked about some of these things before. And so if you know, if you if you look at the most democratic version of, of a regime that Aristotle is conceiving of, you would have everybody participating in choice. So everybody would be eligible to hold office. And offices would be chosen by, by lot. So in that sense, you know, there, there, there would be limited role for elections, actually, because you would have lot as the principal choice by which someone is placed in a position of authority. So that's the most democratic version you can have. Everyone's participating and everyone is equally li- likely to hold office. Um, the other extreme, of course, the oligarchic extreme is only some are eligible to vote only some are eligible to hold office, and you're put put in office based upon election. So all all three of those are kind of the oligarchic aristocratic element of that. And so what do we have in the United States? Well, um, at least in 2022, we have a system where all are eligible to vote, all are eligible to hold office, and we have this aristocratic element of the election, right? So we have a not quite a purely democratic system in Aristotelian terms, but, but we tend more in that direction. And, and so you know, that's kind of the general framework. And you can take this all the way back to the Federalist, Federalist 57, this is laid out very carefully by Madison in responding to charges that our system is aristocratic, that it elevates the few, because no, we have a very broad uh, relative to that day, right? very broad eligibility, both to vote and to hold office. And we, of course, use elections to choose people, but it was not really about the few, even at that point. Uh, And even though, of course, relative today, we would say, well, it was few. Uh, But but in our own day, as as a fuller expression of that principle, we have this democratic system with this element, aristocratic element that's meant to elevate uh, better than average individuals to office. Now, I think what's interesting, Dave, as we look at the headlines today, there's a lot of concern about American democracy. Uh, there's a lot of question about its survival. And, it, you know, as, as I look at the scene, um, in my view, uh, the greatest threat to democracy is the conviction of some Trump loyalists on the one hand, and some progressives on the other, that the other group poses a unique existential threat to democracy. Uh, and, and, the, and, the, and the reason, to, in my mind, that's the most dangerous element, leaving aside the laws that are being proposed on both sides is that it's convinced each of these groups, they have to do and may do whatever it takes to save democracy, break all the rules, do whatever it takes, ends justify the means because democracy is at stake. And and actually that's the greatest threat to democracy, right? Any kind of reasonable rule of law is the belief that necessity demands that you do whatever it takes to, to save the regime. And if that's not actually the situation that you're in, then all kinds of horrible things will happen. And the precedent set by that will only further degrade our Republican system and
1: and the rule of law. Which makes it interesting, right, that this language that Madison uses in Federalist 10 is is so uh, applicable for today. The the great threat to any uh, Democratic Republic is faction. And an aid uh, to fight against that or guard against that faction is the refinement and enlargement of public opinion. So exactly what Aristotle is arguing for here that, okay, that uh, the democratic process is in need of refinement. It's a need of enlargement, it's in need of perspective. So what the excellent lawmaker would, would do is try to find avenues to enlarge and refine that opinion. The presumption on the oligarchic side uh, is that someone's wealth uh, grants them wisdom over matters? You have more stake, and you know, then uh, you have more at stake. Or you're going to do a better job deliberating over what is there. But even there, Aristotle will say that uh, all will deliberate better when they do so in common. The people with the notables, and these with the multitude, and then suggests that in oligarchies, it is advantageous either to elect, additionally, certain persons from the multitude to serve as officials or to establish an official board of the sort that exists in some regimes made up of those they call preliminary counters or law guardians. So it's advantageous, Aristotle writes, to have people voting on uh, measures. So you have, I think, at the founding that recognition, right, that that for those who were property, they ought to be as inclusive as they can in um, uh, turning uh, to the people and in asking, you know, for, uh, their opinions and in, attempting to enlarge and refine those opinions, uh, a, a balance here that is struck um, between these two regime types. But I think uh, it's it's interesting when you say that that the the danger today is the existential threat of of the other that the other poses. I think what is being suggested there, whether it's by those on the far left uh, or those on the Trump right, is that somehow, the other's opinions can't be enlarged and refined. That, that there's no way that, that there can be an education toward a common good. That the assumption is that, that, that the other is simply the enemy. Like, as you said, the, 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 the other is something that we need to remove uh, from the political equation. And I think that when you begin to talk about that language, you're moving into uh, a new type of political discussion uh, that is one of regime change and revolution uh, that that pushes you in the direction towards, okay, what means do I have to use in order to defeat the other who I define as my enemy, uh, which is uh, certainly not where Aristotle wants to go uh, in, in book four.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's one of the real amazing features of the speech that President Biden gave yesterday in Atlanta on, on the two voting rights bills that are coming up for consideration this week and maybe the beginning of next week. And he gets near the end of his speech, and he says, this is how he framed it. Will we choose democracy over autocracy, light over shadows, justice over injustice? I know where I stand. I will not yield. I will not flinch. I will defend the right to vote, our democracy, against all enemies, foreign and, yes, domestic. Right? So Okay, so, so that's <laughs> those that are on the other side of these bills are domestic enemies. And if you think that language is too strong, just go a little further down in the speech. He says, so I ask every elected official in America, how do you wanna be remembered? At consequential moments in history, they present a choice. Do you wanna be on the side of Dr. King or George Wallace? Do you wanna be on the side of John Lewis or Bull Connor? Do you wanna be on the side of Abraham Lincoln or Jefferson Davis, right? Now you leave it with Lincoln and, and Davis, right? literally a traitor that that's a domestic enemy par excellence right the the leader of a treasonous faction massive faction that made war on on the constitution made war on the united states so that's where you are if you're against these bills following the logic of the rhetoric of of president biden now if if that's true then 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 since the civil war has already begun Mm-hmm. And, and he's already defined the lines between those who are part of the country right, and those that are outside of its boundaries in some in some fundamental sense. Now, here's, I think, where it becomes even more dangerous, because it's very unlikely this, these bills are going to pass. It would require, first of all, that the filibuster be taken away. And we know that there's at least six Democratic senators who are on the record as being against any of the filibuster. So all six of those Democrats would have to change their mind on that in order to get the bill to the floor. Okay. Or obviously some number of Republicans would have to be persuaded. So if this bill doesn't get through, which is the most likely result, right, given what we know about the positions people have taken, then what you're going to be selling your electorate, right? What the audience that's buying into this rhetoric is that the domestic enemies won that Jefferson Davis won, that Bull Connor won, that George Wallace won. And what would what would be justified to stop that victory? Right? Could you just could you just allow that to happen? Could you just say, well, you know what? You know, we we had we tried the votes, we lost the vote, we gave it a good shot. We'll try again in two months or after the next election or whatever. Surely some people will read a speech like this, take seriously the stakes as he's describing them and say, Well, that we can't just stop with this. It's mm-hmm. it's not enough to just lose that vote. We have to act, right? This this is just the kind of thing, I'm talking about irresponsible rhetoric, that he was criticizing President Trump for at the beginning of the speech, looking back to last January 6th. President Trump's rhetoric was extremely irresponsible, right? He bears all kinds of responsibility for what followed after his speech there in Washington. But if President Biden is trying to distinguish his approach to democratic politics from President Trump's, this is not the way to do it.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, I think it's a great irony that this whole conversation is really a similar conversation to what is taking place in the at the end of book four is, well, how do you choose the means by which you vote or deliberate upon a matter? And I, I don't think that any of the bills that I've seen in these Republican states that President Biden references are asking for anything extraordinary in terms of election law, whether it's voter identification or having kind of regular periods where you can vote, um, et cetera. So uh, they seem to be very much kind of within the realm of a discussion or debate that ought to take place as to how we vote and how we elect people to to office. So uh, yeah, really kind of disturbing turn. Well, I think that, um, you know, let's pivot now to, to chapter 15, where he talks about uh, a distinction among offices. There are going to be a variety of different offices that are uh, present within any kind of government structure. Uh, but then the question becomes: Okay, well, how are those offices uh, decided, and uh, what what power or authority uh, are held by the office holders within kind of each each office that that's selected? And and here I think that there's another interesting parallel to a very important issue that's taking place uh, you and I uh, as, as leading um, as leaders of, of educational institutions uh, with more than hundred employees are are waiting uh, like many other um, uh, business owners uh, to how the court rules uh, on um, the OSHA ETS stay and I think that one of the things that comes up here is is the question of we have, Within the executive branch of government, uh, we have the Department of Labor. Uh, we also have OSHA uh, that was brought into being uh, by the job safety law of 1970, so the establishment of an agency. And what authority should be held by that agency and where's their authority come from? And the, the big question before the court, I may not be able to get to this question now, that may be part of a, a longer uh, debate is, just what authority did the U.S. Congress give OSHA in its establishment? Uh, because we're, we're talking about in its attempt in November uh, to pass this new ETS, something that's going to affect almost 100 million employees across the nation. And it, you know, I, I think it'd be a wonderful thing if we took a step back here and and asked, okay, just how do we want to be ruled? How do we want to be governed? Do we want to live in a country where, yes, every four years you elect a president? And that president is the executive over the administrative state. And that those people who serve in that administrative state uh, as are granted the authority that is given in that presidential victory. So that we have one president come in and he wants this agency to do X, Y, and Z, that that agency ought to be able to do that because 50 years ago, hundred years ago, the agency was established by Congress or ought there to be a check or a safeguard upon the authority of agencies within the administrative state. So it's it's really interesting here. Once again, okay, we're talking about office holding. We didn't elect people to serve as leaders of OSHA, right? but here we have this, this agency that's taken on this great amount of political power. What, what do we do in a situation like this? I think taking a step back and having a perspective as to how the executive branch of government deals with the legislative branch, you know, we know here that the court is going to rule, so here you're gonna have the judicial branch step in, but taking a step back and asking the bigger questions about how we are ruled, I think would be helpful in the situation. But I don't think, once again, that that's going to take place here, going back to what you said, because of a lot of the rhetoric around this debate. It's not a question of do you think that agencies should have more power or less power? Because there were many Democrats arguing during the younger Bush terms that the the power that was granted uh, to his agents in dealing with um, the war in Afghanistan, the war on terror, was too great. But now those very same Democrats would argue with regard um, to OSHA's um, authority that it ought to have the ability to do what it what it thinks would safeguard the American people so no easy way around this debate as well right Matt
0: yeah and I think the common thread here with that earlier debate over the war of terror or the discussion we were just having over democracy is these appeals to necessity right say so, well of course normally we would want things to operate in a very appropriate way. We want the Congress to pass laws and the executive to just enforce those. We don't want agencies to step in and essentially make laws and make decisions that have massive social consequences. But we've got to right now because things are really bad, because uh, the war on terror presents a unique threat, because Omicron presents a unique threat, because the consequences of January 6th present a unique threat. Right. So it's over and over again, this appeal to the unique threat, which justifies breaking down the constitutional barriers and lines of division and moving beyond the process. And of course, look, this is a resilient statesmanship. There are times when necessity demands you act beyond the law, but you better be careful about those kinds of appeals because your judgment of absolute necessity can look awfully politically convenient. And the next party's judgment of political necessity can also be awfully politically convenient. So that's the kind of language that Senator McConnell has been using in describing the, the danger around narrowing the filibuster. Well, voting rights, of course, is really important. So we'll not have a filibuster for that, but other things, we'll still have the filibuster. Well, there's many other things that are important. And there's many other contexts that could justify and appeal to this kind of extraordinary power. And so if that's the direction we're going, that's very regrettable. and and very contrary to our basic overall constitutional structure, which is meant to restrain, which is meant to to, to force individuals to make the case and not simply assert power.
1: So I have two final thoughts as we move toward the end of Book 4 in Chapter 16. It's interesting that in Chapter 16, Aristotle takes up the adjudicative uh, part of governance, the adjudicative offices, and he says there are Different types of uh, judges that you should have that that look over different things such as homicide and and aliens and all the rest. Then he speaks at the end of chapter sixteen of the adjudicative court that looks over political matters, and he writes, "It is in connection with these that factional conflicts arise when matters are not finally handled, and revolutions in regimes. Now, necessarily, either all decide on all the matters which have been distinguished." having been selected by election or lot, or all decide on all having selected in part by lot and part by election, or all decide on some of the same matters, these being selected on the one hand by the lot or the other by election. So he gets back to his original point here, and he says that the most important adjudicative function is to try to keep the peace as this debate is taking place over office holding, which is really interesting when you you take it back to where we are right now. With, with the OSHA ruling, and with other things that are coming before the court, right, the court has a great responsibility, I think Aristotle would argue, uh, to adjudicate in, in a way uh, that doesn't spur on further faction and revolution, but seeks to guard against the type of rhetoric that would undo uh, the regime. So second point, uh, as in closing chapter four, and I, I wrote this um, in, in my assessment of, of, of the book. Uh, that what we see the first four books of Aristotle's politics is that he doesn't believe that there are strictly theoretical solutions to political problems. All right, one can encourage Democrats and oligarchs to be more reasonable, but the best possible solution is to make practical improvements to each regime. A regime that is torn apart by the few wealthy who have no regard for freedom, or the free and poor multitude who have no regard for wealth will become lawless or collapse altogether under the stresses of faction. And I think that's the danger that we see in our contemporary politics today, framed in a different way, using different language. But but the need uh, is for uh, encouraging reason, encouraging um, enlargement uh, and refinement of public opinion. Uh, And that's what a a standard of good leadership looks like in, in any day. And we don't see that much of it today.
0: Great, great place to leave it. So we'll move on to book five next week. We'll wrap up the show with the Tocqueville's crystal ball. And Of course, we've just reached the end of the NFL regular season and are looking ahead to the big wild card weekend. So a little bit of accountability here. Look at our our picks. We you know, we picked every single team's record. I'm not going to go through all those in detail here, but just to highlight some of the best and the worst of how we did. Um, so among the playoff teams. And my best pick was I got the Patriots record right on and also their position in the playoffs as a sixth seed. So that was good. Uh, Also got the Titans and the Rams records correct. And overall, four of the seven playoff teams in the AFC, uh, three of the seven in the NFC. Uh, My worst pick, um, I had the Ravens at 12 and five. Uh, They finished, of course, at eight and nine. And Seattle at 11 and six. uh, They finished at seven and ten. So four, four wins off in both those cases. So, you know, okay. Um, Glad the Patriots made the playoffs. Happy about that pick. Uh, We'll see how they do in the playoffs. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Um, Let's see, Dave, uh, you did a little better than I did overall. You got five of the seven teams in the AFC and four of the seven in the NFC. Uh, You got the Cardinals record and playoff position. Correct. Patriots position correct, and the Titans and the Rams records correct as well. Uh, your worst pick was the Vikings, uh, so uh, Vikings you had at twelve and five. They ended up eight and nine. And then similarly, uh, you had the Steelers at thirteen and four. Of course, they finished with the tie nine seven and one. So you know, overall, I think I'd give the uh, the, the win to you, um, but I'd say we you know, we did okay, um, and you know we'll see how we do with our playoff picks moving forward.
1: Yeah, I was, you know, it's probably my anti-Aaron Rodgers sentiment that kind of thought the Vikings would do better. And I, I definitely had the the Packers season off as well. So uh, maybe the, the drama to come will be um, after the Super Bowl if the Packers make it there. Although I've heard, I don't know if it's true, but Boomer Esiason says that um, Aaron Rodgers is planning big things if, if the Packers get to the Super Bowl in terms of uh, a boycott. So who knows who knows oh, what, wow. what's going on there he he definitely likes uh attention but i'll i'll stop hitting upon him i know your father's a packers <laughs> man but uh what yeah i i love this weekend I, this weekend and next weekend the wild card and the divisional playoff round i think are kind of the two most enjoyable weekends in the nfl it's my favorite sport so Interesting that uh, Saturday night, the Patriots will have to go and play at the Bills. I'm I'm predicting an upset in that game. I'm, of, of this weekend's games, I'm predicting two upsets. Uh, the Patriots beating the Bills on Saturday night and the 49ers beating Cowboys on Sunday afternoon. We're having a whole bunch of uh, faculty and staff and families over our house on Sunday afternoon, so hopefully not too many of them are Cowboys fans or they're going <laughs> to not be happy uh, during our early evening dinner. But I think the, the, the Bengals will take care of business against the Raiders. I, I think the Bucc, Buccaneers will do the same against the Eagles. Uh, Chiefs and Steelers. Um, Chiefs, I think, take that one, as do the Rams. So those are my predictions. How about yours, Matt?
0: Yeah, yeah. That can be an interesting crowd there with the, with the Cowboys. I think, you know, 49ers-Cowboys, of course, is such a classic matchup, 80s, 90s, when we were growing up. You know, in so many NFC championship games or great playoff games when those two teams were – at their best during that period. So kind of harkens back to, to our youth there. Um, yeah. You know what? I, as I looked it over, I'm going with all the favorites, all the home teams. So that means I'm picking the bills, unfortunately over the Patriots, i taking the Cowboys over the 49ers and the other picks of mine are the same as yours. You know, as I looked at it, I thought, you know, where, where's the upset going to come from? You expect, you know, a team that's hot that's had a good end of season run heading into the playoffs But there's really not anyone like that. Maybe the Raiders coming off a big win, you know, you could give it some trouble to the Bengals. But the rest of those lower-seeded teams, most of them kind of slid into the playoffs, came in the back door, had a late-season collapse that cost them a division. So I, I think it's going to be the division winners moving on, and then I think we'll get some interesting matchups you know, wild card, you can get some, you know, some not great games. That's the only disadvantage of that round. You tend to get better games in divisional rounds. So I think, you know, we'll clear out some of the dead wood here in the first round and and get some great matchups going ahead after that.
1: Well, It'll be fun.
0: Yep. It'll be a good time. Well, that's going to wrap it up for today's show. Glad to be back. And of course, as always encourage you to follow the show and to review it on your favorite podcast platform. And we look forward to talking to you again real soon.